It's a familiar story. A charismatic leader lures in followers with the promise of a better life. He or she goes on to become the center of their flock's world. But what happens when that leader starts to exert control over their followers? What happens when they start demanding money from their disciples and threatening violence if it isn't given? Welcome to True Crime Recaps, the podcast. This is where you're going to get twice the crime in half the time every week. Today, we're talking about some bizarre cult leaders you may not have heard of, starting with the House of Prayer. After decades of nightmares, a daughter turned her cult leader mother over to the police after witnessing her destroy two innocent toddlers. The story came to light with a phone call to the Alachua County Sheriff's Office in 2016. The caller's name was Joy Fluker. Her mother was Anna Young, the notoriously violent leader of the House of Prayer. And the tale Joy had to tell the sheriff was so shocking, he wondered out loud if it was true or not. The House of Prayer is in Micanopy, Florida, a town which calls itself the antiques capital of the state. It's only 15 minutes south of Gainesville. The group gained popularity in the 80s, but it's long since been exposed as an abusive cult with an equally abusive leader in Anna Young. There are other House of Prayer churches in Florida and around the country, but they are not affiliated with Anna Young's House of Horrors. Former members remember Mother Anna, as she'd like to be called, whipping them with extension cords for their sins. Reports included starvation, caging them, and publicly humiliating them to teach them lessons. It's this kind of twisted instruction that took the lives of toddlers Eamon Harper and Catania Jackson. Joy told police how her mother mercilessly beat three-year-old Eamon, starved him, and shut him in a closet to live out his final moments. The brutal abuse came to light after an argument between mother and daughter about Joy's own parenting skills. As she told the First Coast News, her mother was criticizing her parenting, and Joy exploded with the obvious, saying, how are you going to tell me how to raise my kids when you killed two children? Mm Mm-hmm. And then I saw her have a look I haven't seen in years since we were at the house of prayer. That's when Joy knew the barely remembered nightmares from her childhood were all too real. She called the police and turned her mother in. As difficult as it was for her to do it, she knew it was the right thing to do. And as she said, you can't sweep a child's life or anyone's life under the rug. In 1983, two-year-old Catania Jackson was starved and beaten after Anna told the group that the baby's seizures were a sign that she was possessed by a demon. Ultimately, she lost her life after going through a violent seizure without medication. Her brother, John, survived years of abuse by the cult. He told First Coast News about being hidden in one of the many secret cabinets behind the walls or closets and under the floorboards while social services were at the compound checking up on him after a doctor noticed whip marks crisscrossing his back. But because Anna had outsmarted them, they couldn't find John and she continued the abuse. Eamon Harper was known as Baby Moses by the other members of the group. He was left with the House of Prayer in 1986 after his mother could no longer take care of him. Two years later, his body was found dehydrated and starved, curled up in a straw laundry basket in a locked closet. According to Oxygen.com, members were told to burn his body. 
The cult finally disbanded in 1992 after Anna came under investigation for bathing a 12-year-old girl in a tub full of bleach so she could burn the evil out of her. According to a police report covered by Oxygen.com, she only let the child, whose name was Nikki Nicholson, get out of the scalding hot tub after her skin began to fall off her foot. Her parents filed charges, but Anna fled the state before she could be arrested. The little girl was severely burned and had to relearn how to walk. That brutality was the latest in a long history of dark secrets. How could something like this have happened, especially since the group started in the 80s with such good intentions? Anna Young envisioned the House of Prayer for all people as a safe haven for those who had committed wrongdoings to change their lives around. They were all about second chances, financial security, and offering salvation. Over the next 10 years, the group collected members slowly, but by the early 2000s, more than 24 members with children had devoted their lives to following Mother Anna. According to former members, when they first joined, they were told to start going by biblical names, and they had to answer to brother or sister, while Anna, of course, was mother. Followers had to embrace an entire biblical lifestyle. Even their clothing had to be Old Testament. The men wore long robes and beards, while the women were forced to cover their hair and put on long dresses. Now, most of her followers were single mothers. They were struggling to keep a roof over their heads. Anna gave them free room and board, childcare, but at a cost. According to a new podcast called The Followers, House of Prayer, the children were separated from their parents and put into Anna's care. She told the parents that they needed to be apart so she could teach the children the right things. She had full control and the kids were in her religious boarding school, which taught a strict version of the Pentecostal faith. Parents were required to funnel every cent they earned back into the group, which, of course, made it impossible for them to save enough funds to leave. The women were responsible for cooking, cleaning, taking care of the clothes. Their days started with prayers at dawn and sometimes lasted until the early morning hours. As one former member said on the podcast, if you did anything, if you burned food, if you spoiled something, she was irate and you were put in the wash house with the snakes and rats for days. In an article on Oxygen.com, the same member also talked about being beaten with a two-by-four piece of wood until she passed out. Authorities caught up to Anna in Chicago eight years later to answer for the abuse of Nikki Nicholson. She'd been hiding out in the attic of a family member's home. She was sentenced to six months and 12 days behind bars. After she got out, she kept a low profile. Her longtime neighbors in Marietta, Georgia, had no idea about the group she was leading in Florida. But after her daughter turned her in and she was arrested again in 2017, several former members came forward to tell the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about torture they experienced at her hands. Chemical baths, like the ones she inflicted on Nikki Nicholson, were common. Violent exorcisms, screaming abuse, and starvation were also frequent forms of punishment. According to the House of Prayer podcast, on Anna's orders, a mother left her two-year-old son behind on a bench outside a church in Puerto Rico in December of 1984. His name was Marcos Cruz. She never saw him again, and no information about what became of him is available. Another horror story involves a man, this is insane, being ordered to cut off his own penis as punishment for some mistake. So that's also horrible. 
She was also under investigation for the disappearance of her young stepdaughter, Katherine Davidson. In 1973, she told the police the girl had disappeared during a family picnic at Lake Michigan. But other family members say Anna used to beat the girl and regularly locked her in the closet without food. She's never been found. In February 2021, at 79 years old, Anna Young was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, during the sentencing in February, Joy had these final words to the mother she helped bring to justice. You can forget or try to forget many mistakes in life, but a human life should never be forgotten. Unfortunately, Anna only did 42 days in prison before she died from COVID complications at the end of March 2021. And that's your recap, but don't go anywhere because we're not finished yet. Your cult education is just getting started. Chris is coming up with your next story about a 50-something-year-old man who was arrested for grooming his daughter's roommates at Sarah Lawrence College into a sex cult. And it all started in her dorm room. But first, this. For 10 years, Lawrence Ray allegedly victimized his daughter's male and female college roommates, raking in nearly $2 million before he was finally arrested in February 2020 for trafficking, extortion, forced labor, and conspiracy. This is what happened. In 2010, his daughter was a sophomore at Sarah Lawrence College, a small liberal arts school just outside of New York City. She was living on campus in an apartment with seven friends when her father, fresh out of prison, became their ninth roommate. At first, he was like the dorm dad, making them dinners, cleaning up after them, listening to their problems. But then it turned more controlling. He started conducting private therapy sessions with them to help them with the psychological problems he told them they had, diagnosing at least one of them as schizophrenic and manipulating others into believing their family had abused them or didn't love them. Now, those are steps one and two in the cult handbook, aren't they? First, ingratiate yourself, then alienate your potential followers from their friends and family. When the parents complained to the college about him, they were told there was nothing the school could do because technically, Lawrence was just a dad visiting his daughter. Except the dad in this case was squatting in his daughter's dorm. But when they tried to get the police involved, they refused to step in because the kids involved weren't really technically kids. They were all over 18 and could choose to spend time with whoever they wanted to. Lawrence was a man who people say was always trying to con and control those around him. He cozied up to politicians, mobsters, anyone who had power. He was known to spin tall tales about himself. He told stories about his days in the CIA as an international negotiator, an arms dealer, anything they needed to hear to trust him. In 2004 court documents, psychologists reported it was literally impossible to evaluate him because he is able to control almost any situation in which he finds himself, including a psychological interview with a forensic examiner, no matter how experienced that examiner may be. But now, with the school on his back, Lawrence figured it was time to move on from Sarah Lawrence. A friend of his offered him the use of an apartment on the Upper East Side, so Lawrence took his new Sarah Lawrence family with him for the summer. That's when they say he really started taking control with psychological and physical torture. According to the prosecution, the students were subjected to intense group therapy sessions with one person on the hot seat for hours, usually someone who would upset him in some way, like breaking a dish or locking a door. 
And just like many cult leaders, the bedroom became a favorite way to control and exploit his followers. As part of their therapy, he allegedly forced them to sleep with each other while he watched and degraded them publicly to punish them. In the case of at least one girl, he allegedly forced her into prostitution to repay him for property damage he said she caused. Those kinds of accusations were common. He manipulated the students living with him into begging for money from their parents to repay him for damages he insisted they were responsible for. One boy said he was bullied into sending him an email with the subject line, Prices of your things I damaged slashed ruined with preliminary total. He said he was told he owed Lawrence more than $47,000 for a list of things including painter's tape all the way up to a broken stove. He's been accused of threatening to call the police or exact retribution in some other way if they didn't pay him. One family gave their child more than $200,000 to repay Lawrence. They had to sell their house. This cycle of abuse and control continued for 10 years in their apartment in New York, at his stepfather's house in North Carolina, and then when his behavior got them evicted from the New York apartment, they took over another friend's house in New Jersey. According to the indictment, he forced seven of his followers to confess to intentionally damaging his property and poisoning him. When he was arrested in February 2020, the FBI seized a polygraph machine, seven recording devices, 30 journals, and more than 44 hard drives. Today he's in jail awaiting trial. He's pleading not guilty, but some of his victims, potentially including his oldest daughter, are still loyal to him, while others have broken free, reunited with their families, and are in therapy. So much therapy. And that's your recap. Amy is coming up to tell you about a voodoo cult leader slash entrepreneur who manipulated his followers into murdering him for the insurance money. It's a weird one, but first we need to give you a quick thank you to today's sponsor. This story starts on a dirt road far out in the country in northwest Wisconsin on July 18, 1997. A man was lying in the middle of the road dressed all in white, white shirts, pants, belt, shoes. The only color came from the telltale red stain from the bullet wounds in his chest. A passport he had in his pocket gave him a name, Mark Stephen Foster. Police were baffled about how he came to be laying in the road. The mystery only got larger when a note fell out of his shoe during the autopsy. One side of it said, Jack Frazier isn't here. It may be Jimmy Bailey or lookalike. The other side said, three toughs, hope I'm okay. So that's strange. Mark Foster was a charismatic man with many interests. In 1996, he was working as a pharmacist with Drug Emporium in St. Paul, Minnesota, but he was also an aspiring software engineer who owned an electronic library business called Quanta Press in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, the business wasn't doing well and Mark found himself spiraling further into debt and Quanta Press went out of business. At the time he was found, Mark was living with his nephew, Brent, a roommate named Greg Friesner and his wife, Sarah. On the surface, Mark's life seemed simple and straightforward. So who would have wanted him gone? And in such a strange way. Did the answer have something to do with the names on the hidden note they'd found? I mean, who was Jack Frazier and Jimmy Bailey? And to get the answer to that, detectives had to dig a little further into Mark's personal life. So he had an ex-wife and two sons, 11 and 15, living in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, outside of St. Paul. 
They were divorced in 1993. He married his second wife, Sarah, only four months earlier, and she was expecting a baby. She also had a couple of men in her life that Mark didn't like. One was her ex-boyfriend, Jack Frazier, and the other was her ex-husband, Jimmy Bailey. She dumped Jack to marry Mark only months before his body was discovered, and she was locked in a cantankerous custody battle with her former husband, Jimmy. So with such a clear connection back to the victim, it seemed likely that Jack and Jimmy teamed up to take out Mark and in the process punish the woman that they both had in common, right? Wrong. Things weren't quite so cut and dried. Both men had solid alibis for the crime, and as much as they may not have liked the man, neither of them were angry enough about the situation to hurt him. So investigators kept digging, this time focusing a little closer on the people closest to Mark, specifically the two men that were living with him, Greg and Brent. As it turned out, Brent had reported Mark missing the same day he was found. For the police, that seemed awfully strange for a family member to report a man missing only hours before he was found in the middle of the road with a bullet in him. And then they realized that Brent, Greg, and Sarah didn't ask a lot of questions about how Mark was found. And they didn't seem that surprised that he wasn't found alive. So they got a search warrant to see what they could find. And that's when things got really weird for the two detectives working his case. The house was packed with porn and sex toys. Upstairs in the attic, they found a voodoo shrine with their own business cards on the altar. It's not a good sign. The walls were painted in bright fluorescent colors, and gruesome substances were spread across the walls and floors. The high priest of this strange scene was none other than Mark Foster. He'd been recruiting followers from local record stores and other hangouts to join him as a voodoo priest. For Mark, being the high priest meant he could have his way with his followers, men and women. Two of the initiates he was mentoring and sleeping with were his roommates, Greg and Brent, according to MEAWW.com. He told his followers he became a high priest only after he took the life of his teacher in New Orleans and took over his soul. He didn't. But according to Mark, his own teacher had done the same thing to his teacher and so on and so forth, back hundreds of souls. And who was Mark's second in command? The next in line to take his soul? Gregory. But this case wasn't as simple as jealousy and murder. In August 1996, Mark took out a $200,000 life insurance policy. In March, he made his wife Sarah the beneficiary. Three months later, he took out another policy for $300,000 and made Gregory and Brent beneficiaries. But insurance won't pay out if the insured takes their own life. So was this simply just murder straight for the uh, insurance money? Well, not really. The answer was in the note Mark hid in his shoe for police to find, but the actual killers weren't Jimmy Bailey or Jack Frazier. On July 2nd, 1997, Mark wrote a letter to his attorney framing his wife's two exes for his murder. Three days before it happened, he wrote his own obituary, describing himself as a social gladfly, bon vivant, and philosopher, according to MEAWW. He also made a recording saying goodbye to his followers, and on the day of, he was caught on camera getting his 44 out of a storage locker. Then he told Gregory and Brent to drive him up to Douglas County, Wisconsin, where he was found. The all-white clothes he was wearing was ceremonial garb to mark the passing of his consciousness 
into his second-in-command, the person who fired the bullet, Gregory Friesner, who walked away with not only his teacher's soul, but also $300,000 in life insurance money that he had to split with Brent. But that was only the working theory for investigators. For 18 months, they had no actual evidence to prove it until Brent corroborated that story. For his part in the scheme, he got three years and Gregory got 10 to 20. And that's your recap. Beware of voodoo shrines in Minnesota. But stick with us because here's Chris with one more group that's been in the news lately. On April 28th, 2021, a man walked into the Sawatch County Sheriff's Office in Colorado with a wild story. He claimed to have been a member of the group going by the name of Love Has Won, and there was a body in his house. When detectives got to the isolated little bungalow 20 minutes outside of Creston, Colorado, they found something they never expected to see. The mummified body of the group's leader. 45-year-old Amy Carlson was found in a back bedroom wrapped in a sleeping bag. Her eyes were missing and the sockets were decorated with glitter. Her remains were decorated with Christmas lights and they'd set up a shrine around her that could be seen from the kitchen and living room. To thousands of her followers around the world, Amy Carlson was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, Joan of Arc, Cleopatra, Queen Elizabeth, and last but not least, Marilyn Monroe. But to the thousands of people around the world who followed the daily teachings of her group called Love Has Won, Amy was simply Mother God, here to save the world, naturally. But according to the family members of some of her followers, they were abusive con artists just out to make a buck. Let's start at the beginning, and I mean thousands of years back. Their story goes like this. Amy was the queen of Lemuria, an ancient civilization here on Earth. Donald Trump was her father at the time, according to Guru Mag. Amy claimed to have been able to talk to Angel since she was a kid and called Robin Williams a close personal friend and advisor from the afterlife. Every day, the group posted spiritual intuitive ascension sessions online, talked about galactic energy, and read divine decrees to Amy's powers when they weren't pushing their line of apparel and spiritual healing products. You'd expect a group named Love Has Won to be, well, loving, right? In videos posted by an investigative group called Love Has Won Exposed, the group leaders can be heard verbally abusing their members. The group stayed under the radar for years until 2020 when they made headlines for being the subject of protests on Maui after they moved en masse to the island in September. Since then, they've been featured on Dr. Phil and Vice. After Amy's mummified body was found, seven of her followers, including her partner, were arrested while her death is being investigated. And that's your recap. Thanks for spending some time with us today. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, you're going to want to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating. It only takes a second, but it literally helps us get the word out about this show. Thank you so much for your support. And until next time, take care.